What I would often read and research articles, you know, were that African-Americans were more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, but less likely to be treated. And I'm like, well, why? Hi, I'm Bobby, a certified caregiving consultant and educator, a caregiver support group leader, and an international presenter on how to respond to dementia behaviors. And I'm her husband, Mike, and I'm a certified caregiver advocate and a certified music therapist. And this is Roger That, the podcast dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. Here we focus on the caregiver, offer our practical insights, and share some emotional support. And we might even share a laugh or two, because we all know laughter is the best medicine. And don't forget the wine, Mike. I won't forget the grape juice. No, I won't. (laughs) So... You know, we've talked a few times about how dementia in its many forms, and there are many forms of dementia, but it's an equal opportunity offender and it has no regard for race, creed, or orientation. Absolutely. And one of the things that's important to us on this podcast is to reach as many communities as we can and offer them the best possible information for responding to those with dementia and easing the path for the caregiver. That brings us to today's guest who graduated with a PhD from Oregon Health and Science University. During her research trajectory, she has been funded through several mechanisms, including the National Institutes of Health, SAMHSA, an American Nurses Association, and the Jonas Foundation as a veteran's healthcare scholar. Her research focuses on interpersonal factors, such as decision-making and the relationship quality. She hopes to improve health outcomes for African-American persons living with dementia and their families through clinical interventions. We are pleased to welcome Dr. Kalisha Bonds-Johnson. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. As I said, it's really important for us to reach out to as many communities as we can, and I'm really glad that we found you and that that you are working with families and caregivers uh, to support those in the African-American community through dementia care. Yeah, I often say my grandmother is, my research is inspired by my grandmother. She does not have dementia, but she raised me from the time I was two years old. Um, My brother, um, I was two, my brother was nine months. And so in her 50s, you know, she should have been retiring, but instead she took on two children after uh, my mother died in a car accident. And so living in a community with many African-American older adults, I grew up hearing their stories and listening to them and loving them and um, was shocked and devastated to hear that African-Americans are actually two times more likely to develop dementia when compared to non-Hispanic white older adults and um, wanted to do something about that. Wanted to figure out um, what was going on because as a clinician, I'm a nurse practitioner. I worked and many long-term care facilities like nursing homes and assisted livings. And I didn't see the two times more likely, I didn't see double the amount of African-Americans in these facilities. And so in my work, I've um, discovered that while African-Americans are more likely to develop dementia and other, you know, Alzheimer's disease and other related dementias, they are less likely to be diagnosed and treated. And as a clinician, that bothers me because we don't know what we don't know. Absolutely. And do you think it's also possible that African-Americans keep their uh, loved one at home more often? Yes. 
that there's this community of family takes care of family, um, which kind of is how Mike and I ended up taking care of his dad because, you know, I come from generations of family caregivers. If somebody needs help, we step in, we do it. Um, And we recently talked to a guest on on the show about women's brain health and how most of the research is done on males. Yes. I would imagine also most of the research is done on white males. Yes, you would be correct. Um, And so there have been pushes like with the National Institutes of Health to include more minority or underrepresented populations to include women. Um, But you're right that that research is hopefully forthcoming and and there are more of us that are interested in, in learning about the heterogeneity and the differences within ethnic and racial groups as well as across them. You used a word I didn't understand. Oh, please. <laughs> Could you say that and, and explain it? Heterogeneity? Yeah. <laughs> um, it just means the variability. Most people have heard of homogenous, okay. which means similar or alike, and heterogeneous would be the opposite um, of that. Thank you. You're welcome. No, it's always good to learn more new words, right? Especially big ones. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm country, so I may not be saying it exactly right. That's but. all right. I'm from a I'm from a small, small uh, steel mill town in Pittsburgh. So, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, small, small town in rural West Tennessee, like population 800. Um, and my grandmother still lives there and loves it, but I totally get it. <laughs> so, one of my first questions was going to be how somebody young like you would be interested in something that affects for the most part, uh, older people, but you explained that with your grandmother. Now, you said your grandmother doesn't have dementia, but what about any other family members? I actually don't have any family members, to my knowledge, that have it. There have been some Mm -hmm. members in the community that I grew up with that have a diagnosis of dementia. I'm constantly, my grandmother is 87, and so, you know, age is the greatest risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. Sure. And so, you know, each year around Thanksgiving when I visit or Christmas, I like to take a little bit of a cognitive test just to see where she's at. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes she agrees. <laughs> most of the time she doesn't. Um, because as she's getting older, I am noticing that she's more repetitive in some of her conversations. She is still able to care for herself, which is a blessing. Um, but just wanting to be aware of where she is cognitively and understanding that, yes, there are cognitive delays that happen that aren't necessarily MCI or Alzheimer's disease, but being in this world, I'm constantly aware of the importance of early diagnosis, early treatment. Good for you, you know, giving those tests. I have to say I'm old enough that when I go in for my yearly checkup, they now give me one of the the, the mini tests, mm-hmm. and I always get a little bit nervous, but so far, so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I think what people don't realize is that when you do that every year, you're creating data and you're creating a timeline and a trajectory that the provider can see versus just doing a snapshot once and saying, oh, it could have just been a bad day. But to have that data over years and years, I, I think that's great. Your provider is ahead of the game. <laughs> I know. I um, We attended a caregiver conference I guess it was a year ago, and they have this online study. And I've been doing that where every quarter go in, and it's the same series. And just doing that, I get nervous. 
And yeah. I, <laughs> but I do take the results and I give them to my doctor. And so far, haven't had any uh, any movement, any significant movement one way or another. It's like a quarter of a point. And then the next time it's a half a point right. back and a quarter point forward and, and so on. But they say, you know, here's this gap and I'm well within that gap. So I'm good. Speaking of which, it's time to do that again. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's so important. And then when you think about racial and ethnic minorities, especially older African-Americans, there's even been research looking at not necessarily the electronic test, but like what the provider looks like. If we're the same race or the same gender or similar age, does that increase the anxiety or decrease anxiety? Because again, it is very, it can be very anxiety producing to know that someone is checking your memory. And so I think recognizing that that anxiety is there and that anxiety you know, some anxiety is great. We perform well, but then having too much, right. it ends up kind of shutting things down and we don't perform well. Right. Now, speaking of studies, you've recently started a study to examine how healthcare providers and staff assist families of African-American persons living with dementia, how they navigate healthcare decision-making. Would you like to talk about that a little bit? Sure. I guess my initial research was looking at the family. So, the family caregiver in African-American families is typically an adult daughter caring for a parent. But I thought providers and staff have such great resources and information. Wouldn't it be nice to hear from a provider or a staff member what they would want these families to know when they come into a visit or how to navigate or, or what words to use? Am I asking the right questions? Because again, as a nurse and nurse practitioner, I've been able to advocate for my grandmother in ways that she wouldn't have known to advocate for herself because she didn't necessarily know what was available. Right. Um, and so I would send my aunt a text message of one, ask about this, two, check with the nutritionist, three, see if she can get physical therapy. And so I think coming at this problem, this caregiving role from both providers and staff who have the expertise, and these families who are trying to make sense of everything is, is a great way to do it. So, yeah, I'm, I'm actively recruiting for any healthcare workers or providers. Um, so that's physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, social workers, nurses, medical assistants who take part in that decision making process with these families. You know, again, we just recently had a guest on our show, uh, Dr. Chadi Anike. And one of the things that he talked about was. Typically, there's not enough time in a regular doctor's office visit to um, address the issues that come up with dealing with somebody with dementia. No, I completely agree. I mean, you have maybe 10, 15 minutes. And if you don't come in with a clear set of questions, and even if you do, you know, sometimes it's hard to get to that if there's other pressing issues that are going on. Um, one other thing I wonder about is, in many African-American families, and even you said so yourself and kind of your own family, is that usually there isn't just one caregiver. There's a, a network of people. And so, you know, if the if one, a, one member of that network goes to the visit and says, hey, this is what we're thinking, and the provider gives a suggestion, then usually that one member of the network can't make a decision in the visit. They have to then take that information back to the network, and then the network has to gain to, you know, 
get consensus about, yes, let's do this or no, let's not. And then again, we delay healthcare processes, procedures, because of the way families operate, which really isn't in alignment with how healthcare operates. That's uh, fascinating. Um, what we find, at, at least in the on the caregiver um, Facebook pages and chat rooms and stuff that I belong to, very often it's not that that, that doesn't happen. That may be something that's more prevalent in the African American community. Very often, what we hear from caregivers is they're left alone, and you know, there's there's not that network there. But yes, the, there are situations where family members don't agree. You know, one sibling is the primary caregiver and everybody else is second guessing what they're doing. And, and, and that, again, would bring up what you just what you just talked about, having to come to some consensus and, and uh, delaying care. Yes. Yeah, it does happen. You know, since you live in the African-American community and and that's where your family is and your support groups, what can we share today with our listeners um, who are African-American and those who are not about how to better support African-American people? Oh, Bobby, you know, that is a huge question. (laughs) 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 I think what I'm learning in my own work You know, and one thing that in research we don't necessarily do a good job of is that there are unique situations. Like we love to generalize and say, you know, all African-Americans do this and all non-Hispanic whites do this and all Asians do this. And it's not true. Um, And so I think recognizing that, yes, there are some things that we typically see, like the the thing I mentioned about, you know, often African-American families have multiple people or this network, but it is, there are families that don't have that network. And so we can't make that assumption that, oh, they have a support system when maybe they don't. I think if anything I'm learning is that, you know, they often say, if you've seen one person with dementia, you've seen one person with dementia. If you've seen one caregiver of a person living with dementia, you've seen one caregiver. And I think that that is true across races and ethnicities. I think the other thing, you know, I am interested in is is some cultural nuance and, and looking at things. So there's this idea of the strong black woman or the superwoman schema. So this idea that whether it's society or family or culture that that black women often take on roles and do care, care give. And I, I think a lot of women in general often just feel that need. I think society sort of places that on us to be, you know, you're not a good daughter if you're not caregiving. You're not a good wife if you're not doing these things. And so these extra pressures sometimes take over and we don't remember to have time for self and that self-care is important um, when caring for someone. You know, I'm often reminded of when you're on an airplane and they say, put your oxygen mask on first before you put the oxygen mask on of someone else. Many caregivers don't don't put their oxygen mask on first. They're often trying to care give and give for someone else. And unfortunately, sometimes they don't have an oxygen mask available. Yes. They're, they're it and it's there. there's no one there to help and there's not it doesn't seem like there's a moment in the day where you can take care of yourself, which yeah. is why we teach people that self-care looks very different for somebody who's caring for someone with dementia. It might be just taking a few minutes 
to yourself to to breathe, to do some deep breathing exercises, or go in the shower and cry if you can find time for a shower, yeah. or eat a bowl of ice cream if that comforts you, um, those type of things. Or two bowls. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Listen to your favorite music, you know. You're right. They Caregivers have to be really creative in how they find time, time for and, them. And too. take it when it's available. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. Recognize it and then take it in the moment as opposed to wait for it to come around again. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So you've done research focusing on the families of African-American persons living with Alzheimer's disease mm-hmm. and some other dementias and how they make day-to-day decisions and healthcare decisions. Mm-hmm. Do you find that there is a big difference on how the African-American family makes healthcare decisions than other decisions. Now, I know a, a big factor would be what what the insurance is. Right. But other than that, is, is there a big difference? You know, I think there is more research that needs to be done. Um, and that's kind of where I'm at. So I do recognize that I'm somewhat novice in this research world. But that is where some of my interest in the research sparked. Because what I would often read in research articles, you know, were that African-Americans were more likely to develop Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, but less likely to be treated. And I'm like, well, why? Is it, is it insurance like we talked about earlier? Right. Is it access to where I don't have a clinic near me or a support group near me or whatever? Is it discrimination and racism? Or is it just that I think I can do this on my own and I don't need outside help? And we really don't know. So I'm hoping to be able to tease some of that out um, to try and understand, like you said, is the healthcare decision-making process different for these individuals? And if so, how do we meet them where they are? Very interesting. You know, there's there's also um, a situation across the board, unfortunately, where primary care doctors don't have the information that they need and they make assumptions. Um, I just recently uh, heard from somebody that said they took their person to the primary care physician and the doctor insisted the person didn't have a dementia because they were too young. Well, we cannot make that assumption anymore. We cannot. And, And the other thing I think that is unique for primary care doctors, primary care physicians, PCPs, is that oftentimes they've had a really long-standing history with these individuals. And I think, you know, be it professional knowledge, personal relationship, it's hard to give a diagnosis to someone you've been treating for the last 20 years, 10 years of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias. It's tough. Like, I do that in my work, but these are often individuals that come in to see me specifically. They're, they're, they are individuals I've been caring for for the, for the last 10, 20, 30 years. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I think part of what I hope to do, because it is kind of that primary care environment that I would like to shake up and, and help with, is to help give language to that. Because if a family member, like you said, is coming in and asking these questions, then it is worth investigating, I think. And not just saying, oh, they're too young, or no, they they did fine in this 15-minute appointment. They don't have any problems, you know? And so I really am hoping that we can shed 
more light on it. And, and, and again, I think part of the reason I'm curious about interviewing these providers is because I want to know, is there something we can do to support them in this as well? Because Alzheimer's disease and related dementia, it's a life-changing diagnosis for that individual and for their families. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things I often recommend, if you're, if, if you think something like this is going on and you're seeing behaviors that, that maybe the doctor doesn't see because it's a very short visit, mm-hmm. is to record them on your phone and take it in and, sh- and show. And it helps with family members also. Um, now, cor- correct me if I'm wrong, there are some medications that react differently in African-Americans than they do in Caucasians. Um, and I'm wondering if that is something that is being looked into. I don't know if it's that the medicines act differently. I think there have been certain diagnoses that people seem to give to an individual that's African-American compared to um, other ethnic and racial groups. And there are certain medications that they seem to be more likely to give that sometimes have more side effects. So for example, and this is not necessarily specific to Alzheimer's disease, but African-Americans or black individuals are typically more likely to be diagnosed with like a schizophrenia diagnosis when you think about mental health oftentimes than say like a depression or a bipolar. Um, And then with that diagnosis, we often treat with antipsychotics. Our first generation antipsychotics are cheaper, but they have more side effects. So they um, increase appetite, can increase weight gain, can add to other complications if you have them. But these are often more likely to be prescribed in African-American and Black communities. Um, and I've been in talks where it's been like, well, because they have, you know, they're covered by insurance or they're cheaper to get. Um, and so I think sometimes providers own unconscious biases and things play a role in how and what we see and how we prescribe and how we diagnose um, because we're human. And, you know, um, if we're not checking those biases, if we're not engaging and seeing how, because the other thing is, as you mentioned, one's presentation, how you present to a visit helps us from a mental health standpoint, make a diagnosis. You know, there is no lab that says, oh, you have Alzheimer's disease, not a blood test anyway. There's no blood test that says, oh, you have schizophrenia. It really is based on how one presents. Um, And so sometimes when African-Americans present into clinics, they have been seen as more aggressive or more agitated than others, whether that's an actual representation of that person or if that's something unconscious going on. Very, very thought provoking. Now, one of the things I've I've noticed personally is we got into a situation, uh, I'd say a few years ago, where it was all checklist, mm-hmm. right? You come in, A plus B equals C, C plus D equals E, and just all checklist driven as opposed to listening and looking at the full mm-hmm. person, mm-hmm. right? And I, and it's, I, I got to get out of here in five minutes or seven minutes. Right. And I've noticed uh, probably in the past two to three years, and maybe it's just my, my doctor is so much better than anybody else's doctor. Exactly. <laughs> I'll give her the props <laughs> right here. Um, that there's more time taken looking at other 
factors involved as opposed to just looking at somebody saying, hey, you need to lose weight. Right. You, you need to lose weight. You need to go on a diet. You need to lose weight. Without taking into consideration that there was a recent knee surgery, mm -hmm. there's a herniated disc in their back, and you need to get more exercise. Well, you don't take those other factors in into consideration where there's more time being taken now. Uh, yeah. And is, do you see that as a nurse practitioner? Do you see that more as a turnaround in the medical field? Or is it just my doctor? Let's just say it's a doctor. No, I, no. I, would, I would hope it's a turn in the medical field. I think there's been a greater push recently on social determinants of health. Um, and I'm not sure you're familiar with that term. I see you both looking at me. Um, <laughs> but recognizing that there are these sort of outside influences that can affect oneself. So, for example, the... So the the, the um, example you gave about gaining weight, well, if I live in a neighborhood where it's not safe for me to walk, mm -hmm. then I'm not I'm less likely to get the exercise I need than someone who lives next to a park or who lives in a community that's very walkable. Right. Um, and so I think there has been and I'm hoping there's been this positive shift in the medical field to where we look at context and we don't just say, oh, well, they're not adherent. You know, we tried to get them to do take the medicine and, and they won't take it. Well, it could be that insurance won't cover their medicine or that they can't afford that medicine or um, they tried taking it and they had bad side effects, but they didn't know how to tell the doctor. So I think um, hopefully we are considering these other social determinants of health, these other contexts of environment and family situation and patient-provider relationship and health literacy and all these other things that play a part in how well we can manage our health. You know, and you mentioned it, what we, we know in the dementia world. If you see one dementia patient, you've seen one. If you've seen one caregiver, you've seen one. Um, getting the doctors looking at the individual and understanding that dementia doesn't look the same and and. People are different. They react to different things. There's allergies. There's medications that are working against one another, all of that going on. We have a note um, about an article research focused on understanding how families of African-American persons living with dementia disease make day-to-day -day decisions. Um, it, are there studies? Are there trials going on to investigate the difference and to make it easier going forward? to uh, help people regardless of what their ethnicity is? Yes, there are individuals in the research world that are doing this work. Oh, good. Um, but it's, it's still, I would say, fairly early on. I haven't found a lot of researchers that are looking specifically at African-Americans in decision-making. Um, at least where I'm looking at it, there's been a lot of work kind of like at end of life and advanced care planning, but I'm kind of interested in this more early phase of do we know when to go to the primary care compared to the urgent care compared to the emergency room? Do we know what to ask or how to um, how to make the most of those visits? Um, and then I do have um, some colleagues that are looking at that more specifically in Hispanic populations and other populations. And then maybe one day we'll be able to combine all of this <laughs> yes. to come up with something um, really neat that can go across ethnicities and races. 
And I know you've asked me about differences. I will say in the daily decision making, some of the things I've found is that when it comes to the African-American families that I've interviewed and, and examined, they are intentional about trying to keep that person living with dementia involved in daily decisions. So like what they're wearing, how they're spending their money, what their day looks like, as well as trying to keep them involved in healthcare decisions. Um, as, as, we're talk, as I'm talking, I'm thinking about one lady I interviewed and her two daughters and the daughters were like yes we bring everything to mom when it comes to a healthcare decision and the mother was like yep they bring it to me i don't halfway read it because i trust whatever decision they're telling me um but they <laughs> feel like they're involving her and she feels involved which has you know been positive for her quality of life and so i think we often in research and i think even in healthcare make the assumption that once an individual has a diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease and related dementias, that they aren't a, a part of decision-making. And so I've been less focused on their capacity to make decisions and more focused on how involved they feel in the decision um, and what that looks like in these families and then how that influences their quality of life. I love that. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. Um, yeah, because I think we get so caught up on well, do they have the capacity and do they know? And it's like, you know, maybe they don't have the capacity, but they can tell you whether or not they think something's a good idea or not. For the most part, especially in the early stages and even sometimes in moderate and, and occasionally in late stages, depending on what you're asking them. And so I, I've really been intentional about wanting to include older adults living with Alzheimer's disease and related dementias in my work. Um, Mainly because I look at my grandmother and I think, you know, she's 87. I can't force her to do anything. Good luck, right? right. Good luck with right. that. <laughs> like, there really is this dance that we do of, you know, your doctor, your primary care doctor recommended you see this specialist. True story. And she's like, I don't think I need another doctor. And I'm like, yeah, but your primary care doctor thought maybe you should. No, I'm not interested. Okay. So then I'm like, well, let me try a different way. Well, you do realize that primary care doctors, they know a little about a lot. And he wants you to go to someone that knows a lot about this one little thing that you're having problems with. And he said, you probably wouldn't have to see this doctor very long. And she finally agreed. Um, but it is kind of this, like, like, like we were saying, I can't force her to do something, even, you know, as her favorite granddaughter, I'd like to say. It may not be true. Um, <laughs> I can't force her to do anything. And that was what was missing in the research for me, is that it's kind of like we made this assumption that care partners and caregivers, they make all these decisions for people. And I'm like, not in my family. <laughs> you will never win in an argument or a discussion with somebody with dementia. You will not. Absolutely. No. You better go into their world. That's exactly right. They can't yes. come to, to our world. You got to go to their world. Yes. And that's something we preach often. I know. I was listening to one of your podcasts and I was like, yes, this, if we can get this message out to providers, to families, to understand that sometimes you just have to go in the world that they're in. I had one lady when I worked in long-term care facility, um, she was a teacher. And so periodically she would see children running around the nursing home and she'd try and get in her wheelchair and chase after them. 
And her son was just so good at going into that world with her um, to where we didn't have to medicate that because it wasn't distressing to her. She had been a teacher for 30 years. Occasionally she saw kids and she would, you know, tell them they needed to get in line. And I'm assuming they did because then she'd go back to her day, you know. <laughs> you you, you got to go there. Otherwise, you're in a round room looking for a corner. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like that analogy. I'm going to take that one. Have at it. <laughs> Well, Dr. Johnson, it's been an absolute joy. I've learned a lot. Um, as usual, I learn a lot. It's certainly been a joy having you. You're such a delightful, good soul. Oh, thanks. Certainly appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Yeah, thank you. Well, we always learn from every single guest, and I know that our listeners learned a great deal, and we appreciate the work that you're doing, and um, we certainly hope that having this information on this podcast will reach even more people. And we definitely support the, the work that you're doing. Thank you both so much. It was a pleasure. And I've found another podcast to add to my short list of podcasts. That well, I you don't enjoy. need any others. You just need <laughs> us. <laughs> just one. Just one. <laughs> no, I discovered I really like the conversational style that you do. It, it allows me to, to listen and be like, oh, yeah, and kind of talk along with it. Yeah. Um, so, so thank you. Thank you. So I saw you writing down some notes, Mike. With, what are our takeaways for this particular issue? Well, there was there was so much information coming like out of a, a Gatlin machine gun <laughs> that I was having a hard time keeping the thought going uh, while I was writing because there was so much more information coming. Um, but one of the things she said, and I hope that in another year or two years from now is not the case. But she said that the research is so early on. So there's really not any type of results yet. So I hope that the research that is early on now continues. And any of our listeners out there that might be interested in being part of a clinical trial, please go to clinicaltrials.gov and look to see what you can participate in because the research is so very, very important. And with every one of these trials, there's more information gleaned so that it will make the, the care recipients and the caregivers, um, their lives so much better. Absolutely. You can find more information about Dr. Bonds Johnson on our show website at rogerthat.show. This has been Roger That. I'm Bobby. And I'm Mike. And we are dedicated to guiding you through the heavy haze of dementia. So please subscribe to the show. Go to iTunes, post a review, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you have a question or issue you'd like for us to address, please post on the Roger That Facebook page. To find out more about us, head over to rogerthat.show. That's Roger, R-O-D-G-E-R, that.show. Roger That is produced by Missing Link, a media podcast company dedicated to connecting people to intelligent, engaging, and informative content. Also in the Missing Link lineup of podcasts is the Designated Drinker Show, the podcast raising the bar on craft cocktails. Here you meet interesting folks, enjoy boozy banter, and learn how to make craft cocktails from a master. And if you're looking for a whole new way to enjoy theater, check out Between Acts, an immersive audio theater podcast experience. Each episode takes you on a spellbinding journey through the works of newfound playwrights from dramas to comedies and all those in between. 
Find Missing Link's League of Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe, download, and review the shows as your review helps our show reach new audiences. To find out more about Missing Link, visit missinglink.company.